Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. There's all sorts of different ways to approach things like this, but I, I mean, you have curiosity and a genuine interest. And I think if you start encountering people and asking some people some questions, if you're coming from the right place and you've got the right motivations and something opens up, you know, it may not be what you had in mind because usually documentary isn't. It's just like everyday life, you know. Just when you thought you had it figured out, it's like, damn it, he didn't show up today. What are we going to do now? Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life. This is a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 125. And it is brought to you by Music Vine, creators of the most original, easy to use music licensing platform for you, the independent filmmaker. I'd like to start off today by discussing this idea of runtime of your documentary films. I'm inspired in part to talk about this by our doc industry conversation that comes up in our second segment of today's show, where I sit down with Dre Cooper, one of the directors of the recent Netflix doc, Fire in Paradise, a film that details the horrific events in Paradise, California in November of 2018. That film is one of the most riveting, intense, eye-popping films that I saw in all of 2019. And it clocks in at just under 40 minutes. There isn't a wasted frame in the entire 40 minutes. I'm not kidding you. Every single one holds up. Now, these days, it's probably not a shock to people that a shorter-length film can be so embraced and accepted. The short form has become embraced by a large viewing population, right? So much so that original content services like your Netflixes, your Hulus, they're even footing the bill to make these. But it wasn't all that long ago when a lot of us filmmakers were caught up in a numbers game of making sure that our films hit this magical runtime so that it could be included in certain film festivals, be considered for TV programming, be seen in cinemas. The problems with this, of course, are great in number. For example, who is defining what feature length is? The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the American Film Institute, and the British Film Institute state that a film must be 2,400 seconds in length, or 40 minutes, to be considered a feature. However, the Centre National de la Cinematographie defines it as 58 minutes and 29 seconds. But the Screen Actors Guild gives a minimum running time of 75 minutes. And then there's the festivals, who all have their own definitions of long and short films. Sundance, for example, requires a film length to be 50 minutes or more to be considered in its feature application process. I myself remember grappling with all of this back when I was editing my first documentary, Journey to Kathmandu. I'd been editing for nearly four years on the film with all manner of different cuts and time lengths. And no matter how hard I worked at it, no matter how many cuts there were, I never seemed to be able to settle on anything, or maybe more appropriately, any version that was under 70 minutes. I was bound and determined that my film had to be quote-unquote feature length. I had to have a 70-minute cut. And then I also had to have a 58-minute and 30-second cut for public television broadcasting. 
Now, when a colleague and good friend of mine, Bird, a doc filmmaker in his own right, who was well aware of my increasing frustrations with not being able to complete a cut for the doc, he asked me why I was so beholden to making 70 and 58, 30 cuts. I looked at him as if I didn't quite understand his question. Like I said, Bird was a filmmaker. Bird worked in the film and TV industry. Why was he asking me this silly question when he very well knew himself that these were the industry standards for time length? He knew what I was thinking, and he kind of smiled and spoke before I could. And he told me to put those time lengths aside and to just answer some questions that he had about the film which, quite frankly, was going to be pretty easy for me to do since I'd spent parts of the last four years cutting the damn thing. And as I began to answer his questions, I slowly but surely started to realize how much of my film wasn't actually necessary. That so much of what was on my timeline that I'd been playing with for many, many iterations of the film was actually little more than filler. And that it was feeling like I was simply putting things in to stretch out the length of my film in order to meet these time lengths that I'd had stuck in my head the entire time. And furthermore, that the film was playing this way. It was, in effect, not really working because I was making my story longer than it really needed or probably should be. Without even realizing it, I had been forcing this story to a length that I'd been led to believe was the only length you could have for your doc film. My friend ended the conversation by challenging me to ignore the time constraints that I'd long been placing on my film, and instead to just let the film itself determine its own time length, however short or long that film length might be. The long and short of that particularly monumental conversation was that I immediately started chopping away at my edit, and within less than two hours' time, I'd cut my nearly 90-minute, slower, slightly laborious film into a much denser, more interesting 40-minute film. The final runtime would actually end up being closer to 36 minutes. Later on that day, I found myself elated with a new sense of joy surrounding my film, like I'd been liberated from this big burden that had been weighing me and my film down for years. And that for the first time since I'd started on the project maybe six years previously, Journey to Kathmandu was the film that it needed to be. I think that I went on to premiere the film here in Portland at the Hollywood Theater just four months later. Now looking back, in hindsight, it seems maybe a little silly, but at the time, it was a very real struggle for me, this letting go of these arbitrary time lengths. But I'll bet that this probably resonates with some of you as well. Not all, of course, but I'm betting some of you. I know that I have a number of listeners who were brought up in an environment similar to mine to believe that your doc wasn't a legitimate film if it wasn't a feature-length film. Thankfully, this has been rapidly changing over the past few years. The term micro-docs became a buzzword. People have been watching and sharing YouTube and Vimeo-based short docs for a while now. As I mentioned earlier, the Netflixes and the Hulus now all have shorter docs in their original programming. There's the New York Times and OpDocs. And film festivals now have an abundant need for films that aren't necessarily of feature length. The short form is everywhere now. And I am both happy and thankful for that. Now we can all just concentrate on telling the stories that are meant to be told and in the time that they are meant to be told in. And one of the great examples of this is coming up next when we sit down to have a conversation with commercial and doc filmmaker Dre Cooper of ZCDC Films. 
And if you wouldn't mind, just give us a minute to check in with our sponsor, who also happens to be behind the music for today's episode. They're actually a music licensing platform that I think might be able to help you with your doc film. And it's all coming up next, here on The Documentary Life. I want to take a moment to tell you about a music licensing platform called Music Vine. Here on the show, we often talk about the importance of good music. You know I'm a stickler for capturing the best audio possible, as it has the power to amplify your visuals and can move your audience to spectacular places. Music can seriously make or break a film. There's nothing worse than seeing great video being ruined by the same old cliche sounds that everyone has heard a zillion times. But when music is done well, it can transform the entire landscape of your film. Of course, a good soundtrack is not easy to come by. Every film, every scene, it's different, right? That's why a music licensing platform like Musicvine is so great. We've mentioned them on the show before. They're a music licensing company that I use for both commercial and documentary projects. And you will have heard me using music from Musicvine a number of times during season two of the show, as well as today's episode. So why do I use Musicvine? Their website looks great, and above all, it's simple and straightforward to use. They've made it really easy and intuitive to search their extensive music library, a library that, unlike most other music services I've come across, is actually original and fresh. They even have these really cool hand-picked playlists covering all sorts of filmmaking genres, including a collection specifically made for, yep, you guessed it, documentary. And recently, they've made Musicvine even better by introducing a brand new subscription for filmmakers. Their pro subscription starts from just $19.99 a month. You get total access to their excellent catalog of music. Plus, you can license as much music as you like during the subscription. As if that wasn't enough, they're also offering an exclusive discount to listeners of The Documentary Life. Use the promo code DOCLIFE15, all lowercase, DOCLIFE15, and you can get 15% off any Musicvine subscription. And this offer will remain valid through the end of this year, 2020. To check out their documentary playlist, as well as their entire catalog of original film music, head on over to musicvine.com. And don't forget to use the promo code DOCLIFE15 to get 15% off any Musicvine subscription. It's time your doc films sounded as good as they look, DocLifer. Go to musicvine.com today. I am speaking with commercial and documentary filmmaker Dre Cooper today. Dre and his partner Zachary Canapari are the duo behind the production company ZCDC. ZCDC's hyper-visual aesthetic and deeply personal storytelling often blurs the line between documentary and fiction, creating a truly unique style and emotional narrative experience that runs through all of their work. With backgrounds in photojournalism and documentary filmmaking, ZCDC have worked around the globe. 
They write, direct, and often shoot and edit their own films, TV spots, VR, and AR experiences. They've also crafted commercial work for brands like Apple, Facebook, and Intel, and directed Super Bowl spots for Goodby and Chevrolet. Their Netflix original series, Flint Town, which took an unflinching look at a struggling city through the eyes of the police and community, Forbes magazine called it one of Netflix's best documentary offerings to date. Their latest Netflix offering is the 40-minute documentary, Fire in Paradise, which details the 2018 campfire, the deadliest fire in California history. In this documentary, survivors recall the catastrophic 2018 campfire, which raised the town of Paradise and became California's deadliest wildfire. First of all, lovely to have you on the program today. Welcome to the Documentary Life, Dre. Thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely. And of course, we had Gary, uh, your producer, Gary Kaut, on the program about a year and a half ago talking about the Flinttown series. I guess what I'd love love to hear is, what's life been like for you guys since Flinttown? Incredible series, by the way. Oh, no, appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, one of the sort of the, the... The deepest projects we've worked on, you know, just in terms of the the team that we had to assemble to pull it off, the amount of time we, we spent in Flint, um, you know, it was definitely a, a complex story to tell, too. I mean, so many layers, so much nuance to the situation in Flint and sort of seeing the eyes of Flint uh, or seeing Flint through the eyes of the police presented its own challenges. But yeah, since then, you know, it's, it's like anything. Uh, you, you, you go through, you know, sort of a roller coaster of a ride <laughs> on any film project. Eventually, you step off. Um, and you step off and you're a little dazed and you're a little, you know, woozy and all of that. <laughs> you try to get your legs back as you sort of walk down the little ramp. And then you kind of have to look left and right and go like, okay, what's next? What's Where's next? the next ride? <laughs> right. So, you know, it's, it's not unlike an amusement park experience. Um, <laughs> so over the last kind of year, uh, year and a half since Flinttown came out, um, we did a little bit of that. You know, what's yeah. next and, you know, developing some different projects and working on some commercial projects. And then, yeah, we we uh, sort of came upon this this situation in paradise. And we will get right to that here and in short order first. Uh, something we like to do at the outset of the show is we like to learn a little bit about how our filmmakers, how you guys first came to documentary. So how did that happen for you, Dre? You know, it's it's one of those stories that when I say it out loud, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit, but it's not, uh, you know, it's a true story. You know, it was high school. Um, I got into, you know, the, the, the public high school I went to. I grew up in the Bay Area and uh, I went to a, a public high school in a, in a little town called Alameda, which is basically situated next to Oakland and Berkeley, um, just across from San Francisco. And um, we had the local like Channel 3 newsroom sort of in our school so we had the kind of it was like the local public access channel yeah essentially right. inside of our school right with you know some of that equipment at hand uh there was a class you know that was offered it was one of those extracurricular things you do um so i signed up for this kind of tv and, and video program and it was a blast and i just had a lot of fun you know doing stuff it was mostly silly stuff you know, we were we did like uh, Bruce Lee talk shows and would review his <laughs> review his movies, awesome. and then we'd go out and <laughs> As try one to pretend to be karate masters. And you know, I mean, silly adolescent stuff. You know, we did this like Where's Barry Manilow project. Like, you know, I had to find Barry Manilow uh, for whatever god reason. Investigative reporting, <laughs> essentially. But it was yeah, it was silly. It was slapstick. 
But there was one project I worked on that I was like, wow, this is really cool. And it was it was essentially an editorial project where um, I was taking all this kind of archival material of um, of The Doors and Jim Morrison's mm. materials. And I was like taking all this uh, different kind of, you know, all these different video elements and cutting it together to one of his songs. And it was like a tape to tape experience. And yeah. It just became this really kind of exciting, fun sort of collage uh, project. Um, and it was working with some of these real materials, you know, uh, basically tape of, of his life and, you know, the band on the road and different interviews from him. And it was kind of through that process of, of creating essentially like a music documentary through editing that I was kind of like, this is really cool and fun. Um, fast forward, you know, I go off to college and I was like, well, I'm, you know, I can't be a film maker. Like who, who, who makes money making documentary <laughs> films? How do you have a career doing that? So then for whatever reason, I thought I should study philosophy that like that would get me somewhere. So I studied, I ended up studying philosophy and that kind of took me back you know, to Jim Morrison. Sort of different, different, different <laughs> yeah, t- exactly. Exactly. It took me through different portals from sort of Western philosophy to Eastern philosophy. I ended up in India studying abroad for a year. Ah, um, okay got really into uh, photography and uh, was doing essentially documentary photography in India while going to school there. And, you know, it was just sort of like blown away by this world that was so unlike the world that I was from, Um, (laughs) you know, being in the Bay Area. So it was a real interesting experience. And so anyway, I did kind of doc photography stuff as a hobby and that was kind of cool and fun. And then um, and then, yeah, there I was after after college going like, now what? I got a job randomly teaching uh at this continuation high school in hunter's point working with kids who had been essentially kicked out of the public district for one reason or another a lot of behavioral issues um a lot of them were you know pretty far behind academically they had a whole host of challenges and the public system couldn't quite sustain them um and so there was this school that they'd go to with the hopes of kind of getting back on track and then kind of reintegrating back into the public school system and so there I was, I was pretty young in my early 20s, and, you know, I went in there thinking I'd do all sorts of exciting fun stuff. I had a background in creative writing. I thought we'd, you know, do some interesting writing stuff. And these kids were just like, man, these guys were writing at a first grade level. Some of them, uh, yeah. you know, some of them were non-readers. And so it was a real challenge. And I said, well, guys, what, you know, what can we do here? And I, and I was kind of into video film stuff myself. Yeah. And so I brought in a camera one day, and we just started writing the kids that could write. You know, we're like, hey, well, I'll write a rhyme. And the other kids were like, well, you know, I'll, I'll come up with a song and I'll, I'll rap the lyrics and we'll make some music videos. And I was <laughs> like, all right, this is great. Let's figure this out. So I was literally taking night classes, learning Final Cut Pro 1 on wow. my own. Yeah, yeah. At like a local community college just on the side. And so one day we'd like film stuff. And the next day I'd be like, wait, you know, I got to go take this class tomorrow night. And I'll learn how to capture the footage. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then I'd go back the next week and be like, all right, we've got to figure out how the timeline works. And so it kind of went like that. Yeah. So over the course of six months or so, we kind of collectively figured out how the hell to use Final Cut Pro. And together with these kids, you know, we started doing different projects. Yeah. And one thing led to another. And before we knew it, we were doing kind of these interesting personal documentary projects in the neighborhood in Hunter's Point. And I uh, turned it into this little foundation. And these kids were able to uh, kind of take cameras home, take them into their neighborhoods, interview you know, family, friends. Uh, we went down, interviewed local business owners, and the whole idea was like, let's figure out what Hunters Point is. You know, what is this place, wow. the Bayview Hunters Point neighborhood? Um, you know, these kids, most of them lived in old military government housing, um, and it was like, well, wh- 
where did this military housing come from? <laughs> right. you know, it was like, well, you know, World War II, they were building ships. All these uh, folks from the South, you know, moved here to work on the ships. Um, so it was kind of through that process wow. where the kids could kind of learn a little bit about kind of the history of the neighborhoods they were from. Um, and, and also, at the same time, you know, make something right, and right. Um, create. create something that yeah. they could say was theirs and that they could put their name on. And it wasn't just like some kind of boring, you know, uh, math work or, or writing work that they weren't very good at because they had missed so much school because yeah. of different, you know, different reasons. This was the real thing that they could see and touch and wow. feel and be a part of. And so yeah. it was cool. It was a lot of fun. So I did that for about three years and then I had to make a big decision. Yeah. That I was going to be a, be a filmmaker or a teacher. And so I chose... I chose uh, chose filmmaking. The latter, <laughs> yeah. for, for 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 better or for worse. Right, right. And so the documentary seeds were sown. Extreme weather conditions and high fire danger are forecasted in Butte County. Please have your emergency plan ready. It just seemed like a normal fire at first, and uh, it got bad real quick. It's just a matter of 20 minutes. What looked like a calm sky was orange. Our town is on fire. That's ash coming down, not rain. It was just call after call. I can see the flame. It's in my dark. It's getting big by the second. You have to get out. No one can come to help you. I just said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And then it went completely black. So Fire in Paradise recounts the story of, of the campfire that, you know, essentially demolished the town of Paradise and the surrounding area. Uh, just last year, it, it was California's uh, deadliest fire in, in history and yeah. the deadliest fire we've seen in this country in just about over 100 years. And so through some sort of personal accounts of Cal Fire firefighter, uh, some teachers and local residents, the film sort of recounts the the play-by-play, step-by-step mm. of this fire that moves so fast and people sort of describe essentially how the hell they managed to survive and, yeah. and, and get through this. Uh, you know, I just want to say that this film is scarier than any horror film I think I've ever watched. It's absolutely petrifying. And as you said, it is... Uh, it's like a play-by-play situation because it does take you from the very sort of first uh, 911 calls that come in and then takes you through, you know, the rest of that drama. It's it's unbelievable. We typically think of archival footage as, you know, like old, you know, news re- news reels and such. And in this case, of course, there's some of that. There's some, we cut to some news updates, but you're using a host of other people's footage. So talk about the process of sourcing all of that. Yeah, well, to, just to kind of go back a couple steps, I mean, just to give you a little background, yeah. I mean, you know, essentially, uh, you know, it was like, how, how the heck did we come to this project? Yeah, like, yeah, how yeah. did we even find this story? You know, November 8th last year was not unlike, you know, any other day that we've seen over the last four or five years. I uh, went and picked up my kids from school. Yeah. First thing my daughter says is, uh, wow, you know, dad, it's so smoky, it's so smoky. And I was like, yeah, it is. It is really smoky. There must be another fire. Yeah, right. So I come home and uh, I get a call from my mom and she says, hey, you better turn on the news. And I said, why? What's going on? She said, you better turn it on. I said, what What happened? She goes, paradise is gone. Oh, and okay. um, and it hit me really hard. I mean, the, the first time I had visited paradise, I was about eight years old. Yeah, I remember. My, uh, my grandparents had retired uh, in paradise uh, when I was a kid. Oh. And, 
I'd go up there and visit them. So I had a relationship to this place. Oh, um, they, they since passed away before the fire and the family sold the home, but mm. I had these fond memories of this place. My mom and dad, you know, my mom said that had visited this place many times. Yeah. So there, there, there we were on the phone, November 8th and I turned on the news and it just was like, you know, Holy shit. Yeah. Literally in a matter of hours, this entire town was demolished yeah. by fire, just eaten up by this monster. You know, I got off the phone and I kind of sat there and I just, I, I was just looking at these images and I was just like, Oh my God, yeah. what has happened? And so, you know, as the days followed, um, you know, the numbers were growing, you know, it was 200 missing, yeah. 400 missing yeah. to the point where it was like a thousand people missing. And it was just like, holy shit, what has happened in this place? Right. How, you know, how, does how that could happen? this be? Yeah. And then the smoke got so bad in the Bay Area, uh, literally, I mean, it was horrendous. It had people wearing masks on the street. The, uh, you know, air pollution levels were in the, in the red. Um, it was really, really bad. And so a lot of folks were leaving town. So I packed up the bags, packed up the kids. My wife and I went to go visit some friends. And my friend that I was visiting, it's a friend from high school. She married a firefighter. So there we were at their house. Mm. And I'm talking to the, you know, uh, her firefighter husband about what he's been dealing with. He was on the Tubbs fire and all these other big fires over the last few years. And he said he had a group of guys that were um, from his, his uh, firehouse in San Bruno. And they were going up to paradise. And so I was like, wow, man, you know, my buddy Zach and I, we've been, you know, thinking about, yeah. a California fire story. We just didn't really know what it would be or a way <sighs> in. And then the next day we were talking to our partners at Netflix. We were, we were literally talking about another project entirely. And the conversation came up about how's it going up there? Mm -hmm. And it was like, you want to know it's not going well. You yeah, know, the smoke's yeah. terrible. The situation in paradise is, you know, Beyond really tenuous. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hundreds of people missing. Uh, what's going on here? You know, we sort of mutually agreed like, wow, well, you know, if this is something we were interested in exploring. Um, they'd be interested in, in being part of it. So. So, yeah, Zach and I just basically mobilized and the following week uh, he came out from New York and he and I went up there. Yeah. I mean, you just knocked off five of my questions. This is beautiful context. <laughs> Thanks, man. That's yeah, awesome. Just because you, you ruined so. my interview now. I really appreciate that. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Thank you. So to come back to the archive question, the reality is, Chris, is when we showed up, yeah. you know, we walked into what was the largest search and rescue effort uh, in California history <laughs> as well. They had never assembled yeah. this many people um, for an event like this. Yeah. And so you had thousands of people up there. And what had happened early on was they had uh, search and rescue folks in the fire department. You know, they essentially closed the town down. I wondered right? about that, how that worked for you yeah. guys. Nobody could access the town except if you were an emergency responder yep. or if you were press. Yeah. You know, and so with our press credentials, along with, you know, connecting uh, through my buddy's firefighting friends, yeah. we got connected to the press officer. and We managed to get some access. Right. But there we were in the middle of this search and recovery effort. And they were saying, hey, in the first couple of days, uh, you know, they'd get all these tips. People would say, hey, um, mm -hmm. you know, I have a friend. He's missing. My, my cousin's missing. Here's the address. Mm -hmm. And so they'd go to those addresses and they wouldn't find anything. But then they were just sort of, you know, combing around, looking at other places. And sure enough, they're finding remains. Yeah. And so then they were like, wait a second. This, this, this approach doesn't work. We can't just be scattershot. The only way we can do this is literally 
if we comb through every single property. Yeah. 18,000 properties <laughs> were, were, were literally handled by a team. Right. And so that's when they scaled up and they brought in hundreds of more people to help with this, you know, unprecedented effort. And so over the course of the next two to three weeks, that's what we were documenting. That that was kind of our entry point into the story. Yeah. And we were asking ourselves big questions like what, you know, what is the what story are we telling? Right. And how are you going to tell it at that point? Right. So I would love to know how. Yeah. How you went from there and then got to, OK, you know what? Let's start from the beginning and make this a play by play as if it's happening right now. Yeah. And, and, and it, it came out of those, you know, couple of weeks of, of working with people. So, you know, we uh, we started immediately trying to, you know, gain access to the different efforts. Uh, we were able to embed with some firefighters and, um, you know, through uh, some different people. We we met Sean Norman, uh, the Cal Fire captain. And and honestly, the first couple days, it was just like, OK, like, is it a rebuilding? Is it a, is it a recovery story? Yeah. Is it a rebuilding story? You know, are we going to are we going to spend months or a year here? And honestly, Chris, I mean, the folks we were meeting every single one, they were in a You know, these folks had just gone through the most traumatic experience. Yeah, of no, their life. You can't even imagine the trauma. They they were in a You know, folks were in a daze. Yeah, they you know, we talked to them about kind of, you know, shit. You know, what do you you know, what's your plan? What are you going through? They're like, shit, man, I'm just trying to find a house. I'm just trying to figure out, you know how I can get my whole family to sleep in the same house. I'm yeah. staying with my buddy. My, yeah. my kids are with my sister. And it was like that for everybody. And, and, and everybody else we spoke to, they'd say, but you, but you know what happened to me? Do you even know? You know, and it was like, mm. what, wait, what do you mean? You know, and they said, look, let me, let me show you. And they'd be uh. like, look at this photo when I was in the car. Or they'd say, you want to know how long I was on that road on the Skyway in the traffic, man? I was on that thing for five hours. Yeah. Look at this video I shot. Mm. Let me show you what we went through. And it was, honestly, it was kind of one person after the next just, like, telling us, let me tell you what happened to you oh, that day. And it was, it was through that process where it was like, whoa. And then we talked to the firefighters and Sean Norman. And he was like, man, I've been doing this for 30 years. I have never seen fire behavior like that in right. my entire career. Right. This was on another level. And it was like, oh, shit. Okay, wait a second. Why don't we figure out how to backtrack a little bit? And once we started meeting people and they were sharing photos and videos with us and the material they were sharing was like, oh, my God. Yeah. So it, it, it kind of came about just through that process of just meeting and talking and, and connecting with people that it became clear that the story we needed to tell was the story of the day. Yeah. And I'm like, in paradise? Fire rescue, what is the address of the emergency? A fire just started, just kind of where Sawmill Peak comes down on Concal. I can see the flames. It's just started. It's, 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 we have a large fire in that area. We're already no, in No, this is no flames, lady. As you're watching these interviews throughout the course of, of, of the film, you see the vulnerability, you feel the emotional impact as the story itself is is moving at a rapid pace and, and kind of going in this, as you said, play-by-play -play sort of format. And so I felt like I really wanted to know, wow, man, when did these guys shoot these interviews and what the hell was that process like? Because this is incredible. I mean, it was as if you had interviewed them. You know, they're talking in hindsight and with sort of in with hindsight comes sort of perspective and wisdom, right? But at the same time, the raw emotion that you guys captured made me think, Jesus, they like filmed these interviews like just 
just a couple of weeks after this happened. So yeah, that's I, that's, I was so curious about that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, these guys were in it. They were raw. They were they were vulnerable. They were they were in pain. Um, yeah. And they, you know, were willing and and um, willing to 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 share. And I think you know this is where we all owe owe these people, you know, sort of a big a big uh, thank you and, and a big hug, essentially, because yeah. the idea. You know, the bigger idea here is is what these people went through. The whole idea of the film is like put you in the driver's seat, so it's undeniable. That's you can't right. walk away from this movie without saying, "Holy shit, I better get my shit together." Well, yeah, because there isn't that removal that you get with news reports, right? Or like, "Oh, this is happening over in this part of the world," or "This is happening over in this province or state." No, you're like you said, in the driver's seat. Driver's seat. You literally fashioned your guys's film, so you are experiencing it. There's no removal. No, you're inside this thing, and if you walk away and you still question the effect of of climate on our, you know, on our on our environment, or you question, you know, corporate malfeasance and the neglect of PG and E, if you question uh, the effect of a hundred years of fire suppression on on the environment, I mean, these these three factors have combined to create a, a the situation we're in right now, and the one thing that we can't control, or at least it takes a, you know, it's a very complex problem to, to control, um, is the weather, right? I mean, this is having a huge effect. And they said, hands down on that day, yeah. you know, those winds were, were, you know, winds from hell, yeah, literally. Right, I mean, this right. was like the apocalypse. They'd never seen winds so strong. And, uh, you know, when that fire started moving through that forest, it wasn't the in some cases, it wasn't really the trees. It was the amount of, of homes stacked next yeah. to each other that yeah. really fueled this thing. Um, you know, you get dense, dense building in a um, urban wildland interface. Right. And all of a sudden, you've got yourself this out of control fire. Something else that I have to ask you, and, and by the way, this conversation is every bit of what how Gary alluded. This has been an amazing conversation, and I love it, and I could probably talk to you for hours about this. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have that kind of time to do that, so I want to yeah. make sure that, that, that I do. Uh, I, are you kidding me, man? I, I would love to sit down and, and just talk doc with you, and, and, and be, I'll also because I live in the West Coast for so long, including uh, San Francisco. Right. In watching your doc, one of the things... As a fellow doc filmmaker that stood out to me was, and it impressed me and it made me very excited for the future. And it takes someone like a Netflix to sort of make this happen, I think as well, or embrace this is this idea of like, Hey guys, you have a doc film. A doc film doesn't have to be 70 minutes. It doesn't have to be an hour and a half and, or it doesn't even have Mm -hmm. to be an hour TV programming. You guys have a 40 minute film that stands up to (laughs) any documentary film. I'm curious how you came to the decision. You know what? I don't think this is going to be a full length feature. And then what that process was and how Netflix was responding to that. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I think the the reality is, is that the, the, the short film and the short doc in particular is this growing, this growing uh, genre, if you will, or this growing category. And I think the 30 to 40 minute doc is, uh, depending on the story, is uh, is kind of the right move. I mean, it's this thing that's like, you know, it's you're, you're in, you're in it. It's exciting. And yeah. just when you start to question what's happening and where you're going next, it's kind of like, boom, you're done and you, and you move on. Yeah. So it it fits for certain stories. Um, I think for our film, you know, early on when we were speaking to Netflix, um, 
you know, they were interested in in exploring the idea of a forty minute film with this uh, oh. story. Um, they they had had success in the past with like White Helmets, for example. Yeah, you know, which is you know, there's this big issue, there's this big situation, um, and you have these guys, the White Helmets, you know, who are sort of dealing with um, kind of trying to take care of innocent folks who are being injured in this, you know, catastrophic war situation. Right. So, you know, it's a similar kind of setting, if you will, or framework. Um, and I think in some ways, you know, we'd kind of gone back and forth with them because obviously when we were there, it was like, you know, we were thinking about it in terms of the feature. I can imagine. Um, and that's where it was like, okay, but in order for it to be a feature, it's like you need to really sustain the, you know, some of these people's stories and, yeah. and unpack them and see them change over time. And we kind of felt like the, the only way a feature works in this is if we were to put in the year, you know, and like yeah. see, well, where are these guys at in a year? Right. Were they able to rebuild? Were yeah, they, right, did they go right. back? Did they did they run far away from paradise? Like what's happening here? So it, it sort of changed the story a bit, you know, and thinking about it in the long term or in, in a feature format. Whereas in this 40 minute format, we could we could in some ways sort of just easily imagine this idea of this sort of pressure cooker, mm. you know, front half, if you will, that recounts this harrowing day. And then, boom, it's kind of like and now the fire is over and it's like now what? And it's like you see the fallout and then you kind of just are on the beginning journey of how these different people are processing what they've just gone through. Um, little bits, you know, just little bits of, of reflection, like for example, the teacher, you know, sort of thinking through what's going on with her kids and she's looking at those notebooks and you see the kids just processing. I mean, that stuff is, you know, when you see what they wrote in their notebooks, it's just crushing. Yeah, right? um, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, Daisha, the woman on the slab who reflects and she's just like, look, I actually don't want anything to do with this place. I got to get far away. Yeah. So we felt like that, that worked, you know, but, but once you go past that 40 minute mark, then it's kind of like, well, now what, now we need to, we actually, we got to see this through. Mm. You can't half step it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, you can't quite half step it. You got to really put in the time and tell a sustained story about these people's lives, um, and really pay, pay respect to them and, and what they're going through. And we felt like the 40 minute format allowed us to, you know, tell this more concentrated story. And in some cases we sort of liken the 40 minute format to how, quickly and intensely the fire itself kind of moved through the town, you know, like it, it's the movie sort of plays like that, just mm. given its time frame, you know? So we, there was a lot of kind of reasons to, to figure out how to make it in this sort of 40 minute uh, format. As we wrap up here in the documentary life, Dre, I wonder if you can share with us any sort of, um, any sort of suggestions or tips if someone else, you know, another filmmaker out here who's listening to this decides that they want to cover an event like this that maybe has happened very recently, you know, and this could be, it's a broad, it's a very open-ended question. I, I understand that, Dre, but I'm curious, can you share with us, look, if you want to cover an event like that, that's a tragedy that has recently happened, I would recommend doing this. And what would that be? Well, I think with any documentary or any story, you know, that you're connected to. I mean, to me, it's always about just following your, your heart and your instinct and, and hopefully through your, you know, sort of one, one curiosity kind of leads through one door yeah. and that kind of opens another door. And so for example, we have a, you know, a filmmaking friend, um, Nadia Holgren, and she made a film called after Maria, which is about, you know, sort of life after the hurricane that hit Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. 
And so there you have a situation, right? This, you know, big event, uh, this catastrophic event hits this uh, place. And then now it's like, well, now what? And she told that story through a couple of very personal points of view of, of a few women and their families and children who are in New York. And they're basically in this like little hotel and they're trying to figure out what to do next. And so, you know, it's a very personal, intimate, intimate film. But like, you know, rather than sort of tell the story of Puerto Rico yeah. or, you know, go there and kind of see this. It's like she kind of met these women, um, you know, through a couple of different situations. But it was like she told this kind of big story of, of what happens after through the very sort of personal and intimate stories of a few of these these women and their families yeah. um, kind of trying to make it in New York City. So there's all sorts of different ways to approach things like this. But I, I mean, you know, I think this one was not unlike our other films. It was, you know, it's, it's, you have curiosity and a genuine interest. And I think if you start encountering people and asking some people, some questions, uh, if you're coming from the right place and you've got the right motivations and things usually, you know, something, something opens up, you know, it may not be what you had in mind because usually documentary isn't. that's the beauty and the frustration isn't it oh totally i mean it's just like everyday life you know like yep (laughs) Um, just when you thought you had it figured out it's like damn it (laughs) he didn't show up today what are we gonna do yeah right (laughs) dre what a great conversation i'm so happy to have now spoken with both you and gary we'll have to get zachary on here in the future for sure Um, Thanks for taking the time out today and and joining us today here on The Documentary Life. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thanks for having me on. That was fun. Hey, can I ask a quick favor? If you found this podcast helpful in living your doc life or making your doc film, will you help us share it with more people by giving us a stellar review on whichever platform you use to listen to this podcast? We'd really appreciate it. And you'll be helping the doc filmmaking community find us. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.